All right, well, good evening once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2? Now, remember, God has just finished creating. Six days he created, seventh day he rested, as we're going to see here. And um, we enter into chapter 2 now. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from his from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, the first three verses of chapter 2 actually should be the last three verses of chapter 1. Remember now, the words are inspired, not the chapters and the verse numbers. Okay, those were added much later by man to help us find things. And we appreciate that, but sometimes they got it wrong. Okay, so whenever you read your Bible, when a chapter ends, read the first couple of verses in the next chapter to see if it doesn't go with the previous chapter, making these a little more clear. All right? So actually, chapter 2 should begin with verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now we're backing up a little bit, okay? Man has already been created at the end of chapter 1. But now Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, backs up a little bit to let us know what happened and what was going on in the earth before man was created. Now, as we've already pointed out, before the flood, it didn't rain on the earth. A water vapor came up from the ground every night and watered all the vegetation on the earth. This was caused by what God did on the second day of creation. Backing up to, verse, to chapter 1, verse 6. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. A firmament is just simply an expanse or a space. We would call it the atmosphere, okay, that surrounds the earth and what we breathe, okay? Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, not the heaven, okay? Not the place where he dwells. I'm sorry, mine's got this capitalized. That's not really true. He called it the expanse that we breathe, okay? There is the the, the heaven, which is the first heaven, the air we breathe. Second heaven is the celestial heaven where the planets are. And then the third heaven is where God dwells, okay? This is obviously talking about the atmosphere around the earth. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, when God first created the earth, he placed water on the surface in the form of oceans and seas, etc. And in the upper atmosphere, in the form of dense water vapor, which then encased the earth in a water blanket or water barrier. Now, this had the effect of turning the earth into a giant closed terrarium. A giant closed terrarium, which is a system that incorporates evaporation and condensation. The whole earth, okay, was enclosed in a moisture blanket, and this allowed sunlight to come in, it caused, caused evaporation of the seas and the, and the water on the surface. And as the, um, as the water vapors rose in the evening when the sun, the earth rotated away from the sun, things cooled and everything kind of fell back to the earth. And it caused a, kind of like a heavy fog uh, in the morning upon the earth that watered everything. Uh, an online encyclopedia explains there's two kinds of terrariums. I just learned this today. Uh, open terrariums and closed terrariums. This is the earth at this point was what was called a closed terrarium. Here's what uh, one uh, author explaining what we would put on our countertop. You wanted to have a closed terrarium made out of a, a box or a bowl of glass that's completely covered. Okay, uh, they said, and I quote: "Within within the closed, transparent environment, sunlight is still able to penetrate the vegetation, causing the water vapors to rise." The vapor is trapped on the roof and drops at night as temperature cools, creating a cycle of water. The cycle allows for life to flourish, creating a self-sustained ecosystem. 
So the earth at this point was a self-sustained ecosystem. Uh, it was a closed system. And as such, there was no rain needed to fall on the earth because, again, the earth just recycled its, the water, evaporated condensation and watered the earth. Now, such a vapor blanket, as we've already pointed out, we studied chapter one, would greatly change the ecology of the earth. I know I've read this before. Let me just read it again quickly for those who weren't here. This comes from Dr. Henry Morris in his book, The Genesis Record, fantastic book. Uh, on Genesis from a scientific. He was a Christian. Christian he's with the Lord now, but he's also a, a, a well-known scientist. So he comes from a science background. And he suggests this would be the effects of this water blanket encasing the earth. He said, first of all, it would serve as a global greenhouse, maintaining an essentially uniformly pleasant temperature all over the world. Number two, without great temperature variations, there would be no significant winds and the water-rain cycle could not form. There would be no rain as we know it today. There would be lush tropical-like vegetation all over the world, fed not by rain, but by a rich evaporation and condensation cycle, resulting in heavy dew or ground fog. Number four, the vapor blanket would filter out ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies bombarding the planet. These are known to be the cause of mutations which decreased human longevity. As we're going to see before the flood, they live quite long. And uh, we'll talk more about the effects of this greenhouse or this terrarium effect when we get to chapter 6 that it had on the earth. But he says human and animal lifespans would be greatly increased because this moisture blanket or barrier filtered out all the harmful radiation from space that floods our atmosphere, jams our DNA, and causes us to age more quickly than God really designed us to. And number five, a vapor blanket would provide the necessary reservoir for a potential worldwide flood. So all of this was setting the stage for what would be coming in chapter six, all right? And we'll talk more about the effects of this water blanket or bubble and the effects it had in the pre-flood world when we get to, again, chapter six. Verse seven, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now, chapter 2, listen to me, does not contain a second conflicting creation account from the one God gave in chapter 1 as liberal theologians contend. If you listen to the liberal theologians, they'll tell you, well, you got you know two creation accounts. You can't trust the Bible. Look, it, you got a creation account in chapter 1. You got a creation account in chapter 2. The Bible's hopelessly confusing. Well, let me just say this to you. In Genesis chapter 1, we have a quick overview of the six days of creation and then the first Sabbath rest, which God instituted on the seventh day. In chapter 2, we have an amplification of the sixth day. Why? Because that was the day that God made man. And listen to me, the creation and ultimately the redemption of mankind is not only foundational to the narrative of the book of Genesis, but is the central theme of the entire Bible. That's really what God wants to get to, the story of redemption. Well, man can't fall until, unless he's created, so we got to get there first. And so, you know, God just has Moses, which was very a very common Hebrew uh, writing and teaching technique to give a quick overview narrative of something and then zero in on one element of it to amplify it, because that's really what you want to get to. That's really the heart of what you want to bring out. The, the theme of the entire Bible is the redemption of mankind. Uh, that's why God put this in Genesis 1, to give us a quick overview of creation, including the sixth day when he made man. And then chapter 2, let's zoom in now on man, because he, she, becomes central to the rest of the Bible and the whole theme of what God is trying to uh, get across. And we see again in verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now, as we said when we studied the creation of man in chapter 1, the same basic elements that make up dirt are the same elements that God used to create our physical bodies. When the Bible speaks of dust, you know, notice that God didn't say dirt, although that's what it was. He called, I'm not implying anything, you know, no offense to anybody. Uh, but, you know, when, when the Bible speaks of dust... In the Old Testament, when God uses that word, uh, it often speaks of something of little worth 
associated with lowliness and humility. You remember uh, in Genesis 18, which we'll get there in a couple years, but in Genesis 18, what? No. Uh, remember how, how Abraham is kind of bartering with the Lord. He knows that God's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And his nephew Lot lives in Sodom, right? And so, uh, you know, at one point, uh, the Lord Jesus, in a pre-incarnate appearance, which he did numerous times in the Old Testament, they're called Christophanies, where the Lord came to, to reveal uh, something to man, and, and he, you know, he took the form of a man, but he had not been born a literal man at this point, okay? Pre-incarnate appearance. Well, anyways, the Lord Jesus and two angels come to, Moses, uh, come to Abraham. And uh, they tell him that uh, their plan is to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness. So these two angels split and go off to Sodom. And, and you know, in the, in the kind of the typical Jewish fashion, Abraham stays back with the Lord and begins to barter with him. Well, should not the, Lord, the, the righteous judge of all the earth do its right? I mean, would you judge the city if you found 50 righteous in it? If I find 50 righteous, I'll spare it for the 50. How about 45? Well, if you found 45 righteous, would you spare for the, you know, I'll spare for the sake of the 45. He gets all the way down to 10. Would you believe 10 righteous? That kind of thing, right? He's entering this kind of bartering thing with the Lord. Well, at one point, as he's pushing it a little bit, and he realized this, in verse 27, that Abraham answered and said to the Lord, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. So Abraham there is kind of, taking a very humble place. Who am I to speak to the Lord of all the earth? I mean, I'm just dust. See, they understood that. They understood that dust was a symbol of lowliness, humility. You know, in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, we read, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You know, we often put more confidence in ourselves than we ought. Doesn't, didn't Paul say in Romans 12, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. We always get into problems when we do that, okay? We always think that, Lord, you know, I can do it, okay? Watch me. No, you can't do it, God says, and I'll watch you fall, and then when you, you come to me, we'll, we'll get it right, okay? But, uh, but, you know, every time we blow it, because we want to do good for the Lord, we want to please Him, and then we fall to the same old bad habit. And the devil's right there to condemn us. Man, he's whispering in our ear, you're a lousy example of a Christian. God wants nothing to do with you. Remember these verses in Psalm 103. Look, God's under no delusion as to who we are. He knows we're but dust, okay? We are totally incapable of doing anything to please him in our own strength. We can't even begin to live the life he's calling us to live without his power. The sooner we understand that, the sooner we will get on our knees every day and throughout our day and say, Lord, I need your grace and your strength for every moment of this day to live for you and to please you. Now, as God has formed man out of the dust of the ground, listen to me, what made man special and unique was not, was not the earthen vessel, as Paul called it, his physical body which God had made. That, that's not what made him unique. Animals had got, been given bodies by the Lord, right? It wasn't the physical body, or again, as Paul the Apostle put it, this earthen vessel, right, that was so special that made us unique. Although this is a pretty spectacular biological machine God has given us our spirit to live in. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, our human body is incredible, but... What really set us apart from all of God's other creation was not the container, but what he breathed into the container, which was his very breath, the breath of God. Verse 7, once again, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Or the Hebrew literally is a living soul. Listen, the word breath there is the Hebrew word ruach. And ruach could be translated breath, wind, or, listen, spirit. Breath, wind, or spirit. And so when God created man, he breathed into him physical life. That's true. 
but he also breathed into him the very breath of God, the spirit of God, and imparted to man at that point spiritual life as well. Not just physical life now, but physical and spiritual life. That's what set man apart from the animal kingdom. That's what made man in the image of God. God is a triune being, a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God made us in his, made us in our, his image as a triune being of body, soul, uh, which is our consciousness, and originally man was given a spirit. He was a triune being as God is a triune being. And Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is spirit, and we know that God communes with us in the area of the spirit. And that's why God was able to commune with Adam and then Eve, because God was spirit, they had a spirit, and so they communed with each other in the area of the spirit until until the fall, when man's spirit died. We're going to read that God would say to them, as he placed them in this beautiful paradise, this garden of Eden. He said, In the day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. The moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of that tree, they didn't die physically, not instantly, although they did set in process, in motion, the process of physical death, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But what died instantly was their spirit which also immediately or instantly severed their fellowship with God, reducing man, listen, to a two-dimensional being instead of the three-dimensional being God had originally made him to be. Now, in this fallen state, man was just like the animal kingdom because God made, you know, we talked about this earlier, we studied chapter one, plants have a body, but they don't have a soul, they don't have a consciousness. Animals, two-dimensional beings, they have a body, and they have a soul, but by that I simply mean a consciousness. They're alive, okay? Only man w was made by God to have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And again, that spiritual part of him connected with God and allowed them to commune one with each other. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, as God promised, in the day you eat of the tree, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. What died instantly was their spirit. And man was now reduced to a two-dimensional being. And not only that, but his nature was flipped upside down. His body had been the lowest most on the rung. The most important thing was his spirit, which communed with God, the soul, which lived in subjection to the spirit's desires, and the body, which was important, was the lowest thing. It needed to be taken care of, but it was not the end-all, be-all. Well, after the fall, that all changed. Man's spirit died. He was disconnected from fellowship with God and his body was flipped up to the uppermost position which became dominant now and man's soul or consciousness lives to satisfy the body appetites peter mentions this in one of his epistles where he said the natural man the unsaved person is like a brute beast which often ought just to be caught and destroyed because peter lived in a pretty gross society i mean there were there was wickedness going on in that first century greco-roman world like you ain't ready for i mean the stuff that went on the the absolute um, perversion. And Peter was reacting to it and saying, you know, when man acts like an animal, well, as an animal often, he just should be caught and destroyed. Speaking of those who no doubt had broken the law and lived a certain way to the point where, you know, they just needed to be judged and taken out of society, they were so bad. And this is man's, was man's condition after the fall, a two-dimensional creature severed from God, okay, groping around in spiritual darkness. Someone had said, mankind poked their own spiritual eyes out, and now he gropes helplessly trying to find God, but unless God reveals himself to man and draws him to, to, to himself, God drawing man to himself, man will go on indefinitely, forever, in this fallen condition. And, and let me just say this. Once a person receives Jesus Christ, they are born of the Spirit, in other words, their spirit comes alive. And they are reconnected with God, spirit to spirit. Their nature is flipped right side up. Spirit, soul, and then body. Again, as Christians, the body is important. God wants us to take care of it. But we're not, we shouldn't be consumed by it. You know, you watch TV, you can see how, uh, very quickly how much our society is consumed with taking care of the body. It's everywhere, Right? I mean, you know, we work it out. We feed it with the right foods and expensive organic stuff oftentimes. And, 
you women, you know, you got uh, a whole industry that caters to cosmetics because, you know, you want to make the body look nice. And we appreciate that as men. Uh, but I'm just saying that, you know, I mean, we live in a culture that's obsessed with the body, you know. And as Christians, it shouldn't be that way. We should be obsessed with the spirit, communing with God, loving God, coming in contact with him every day and just enjoying his fellowship. Now, the Bible talks about two different kinds of life. Life of the natural man, life of the spiritual person, the one who's saved. The word it uses for life in the Greek of an unsaved person is bios. Where do we get our word biology from? Okay, And this simply means life as opposed to non-life. But let me say this to you. A person who is in a severe automobile accident and is now in a hospital being kept alive uh, by machines, hooked up to machines that are doing the breathing and, and feeding them and so on. They're technically alive. They have bios life. But that's not living. That's not living. When a person gets born again, the Spirit of God comes in and gives to them eternal life. The Greek word is zoe life. Okay? Zoe life. And zoe life, think of it as life in all of its fullness and richness. Okay? I mean, life in all of its fullness and richness. Eternal life is not just a quantity of life, guys. It's a quality of life. Where the Lord Jesus Christ moves into our hearts through his spirit and fills us with all the wonderful kingdom attributes that someday we're going to enjoy outwardly over the face of the whole planet. The love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All the things that we're going to see someday openly as Jesus uh, establishes his kingdom, visible, earthly, political kingdom, when he returns. And the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth like the waters of the sea cover the earth now. And we will not practice war anymore. We will turn our swords and our spears into plowshares and pruning hooks, the Bible says. Every man woman will sit under his own fig tree and not be afraid. Man will not study war anymore. And we look forward to that day. But once you receive your Christ into your heart right now, the kingdom comes inside of you and me. And some of the stuff that's going to be going on outwardly when the Lord comes already fills our hearts. But Zoe is not just a quantity of life. Eternal life is a quality of life. Life in all of its richness and fullness. Okay, And, and really that's what it's all about. That's what we blew in the garden. And that's what redemption is all about restoring. Now, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant for, uh, to the sight and, and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know how big the garden was. I happen to believe it was very large, and I think it was probably stocked with thousands upon thousands of trees. And out of all those thousands of trees God placed in the Garden of Eden, he mentions two by name. Were they all named? I don't know. I, we don't know that for sure. Probably not. But he does name these two. One is called the Tree of Life, and the other is called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. Both, listen, become extremely important to the story of redemption, as we're going to see. Now, Eden, okay, Eden, is a Hebrew word that means a luxury, a pleasure, a delight, and suggests that this garden was a paradise on the earth. And so listen to me. The story of mankind begins in paradise in the Garden of Eden. That paradise was eventually forfeited, and the story of mankind became paradise lost. As man sinned and was driven from that garden by God himself. But as we read the book of Revelation, we see that the story of mankind is a happy ending. A happy ending. Not for all, but for all who want a happy ending. Okay? Because ultimately, we read in the book of Revelation that the story of mankind will end with paradise restored. As redeemed humanity will live forever in a paradise garden city called New Jerusalem. So listen. Paradise lost became paradise found in the story of redemption. You say, how? How did that happen? Well, it was because of a third garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus surrendered to the Father's will. 
and went to the cross the next day to die for fallen humanity. I love the Lord how he turns the tables on the devil. Satan used the tree to kill man eternally, but God used the tree to restore life to man eternally. Listen, the tree of life, well, you want to talk about the tree of life. The tree of life in truth is the cross of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 13, Paul said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a what? Tree. Calling the cross a tree. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter said, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Well, verse 10, back in Genesis 2, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold that is of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittichel also called the Tigris. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we don't know anything about the Pishon or the Gihon rivers. And though the Tigris, also called here Hittichel, and Euphrates rivers are familiar to us, we still don't have enough information to determine the exact location of the Garden of Eden, especially, listen, because the flood no doubt changed the topography of the land, causing the original locations of these rivers to be changed to their present locations. Think about this. This, this happened over the face of the whole earth, obviously, when the flood came, not just in this location here. But as large portions of the earth's landscape were pushed down under the tremendous weight of the water pressure, which then formed new depressions in the earth's crust that became new seas, and new bodies of water that formed during and remained after the flood. But like the flood, the water pressure of the, the flood waters pressed down on the earth, causing indentations where, again, seas and lakes and various other bodies of water formed. That pressure pushing down in one place of the earth's crust caused other spots of the earth's crust to thrust upward, creating mountain ranges and mountains and so on. And so we can't use the information here because people say well let's hey you know the lord's telling us where where the garden of eden is uh, let's map it out and see if we can't find it you know good luck i mean you know i mean I, I think it's still there somewhere okay if you find it let me know i'd love to see it uh i personally believe it could be tucked away in some hidden valley somewhere or it could even be under water at this point i believe it's still there because that one tree, the tree of life, that God mentions in the garden, that's going to play a prominent role in the eternal state. You can read Revelation 20 to 22, I believe. But that tree of life is going to be in the city of God. Now, God no doubt transplants it, but it's still around today. Okay? And so we look forward to seeing what God, maybe he'll reveal the Garden of Eden someday soon. But we, don't, we can't find out where it is through these um, things right now because these rivers have been changed, no doubt. And that goes for the location of the land of Havilah and Cush. We don't know where they originally were either. I just think it's safe to say, though, the Garden of Eden was located somewhere in the area of Mesopotamia. Now, the word Mesopotamia means land between the rivers. Land between the rivers. And is a name for the area of the Tigris-Euphrates River system, which corresponds to modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, the northeastern section of Syria, and to a much lesser extent, southeastern Turkey and a small part of southwestern Iran. This whole area is often called the cradle of civilization because we believe this is where, in fact, we know. Uh, archaeologists, have, this is the, they found the oldest artifact known in this area. This is where life began. So in the scriptures, it's always been the starting point of all life there, human life, okay? 
but the cradle of civilization. Now, verse 15. Then the Lord, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of, a, of the garden you may eat, freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, God was not being overly restrictive here, was he? Okay. He only gave Adam and Eve one command, one prohibition. All right. That was it. One command. They could eat from the thousands of trees in the garden except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God do this? Well, very simply, he did it so that man could exercise his free will. And choosing to love God by obeying this one tiny little commandment that God had given to, man, uh, to uh, mankind, Adam and Eve. Or he could exercise his free will in choosing to do what he wanted, which is what happened, of course, in rebellion against what God had said. Now, it's true God could have forced man to obey him. But again, that would have reduced man to a robot. And God didn't want robots. He wanted people that would love him and obey him of their own free will. Look, God gave mankind a free will, which is meaningless if there's no choice, right? Talk about free elections, but there's only one candidate. Not true. And God gave to man, I say man, I mean Adam and Eve, a free will. But then by necessity, he had to give them a choice whereby they could exercise that free will, right? It, it all surrounded or revolved around God's desire to be loved by mankind. And love is meaningless if it is not given willingly. I mean, let's put it this way, a very sick man, a very sick man who came up to a woman and put a gun to her head and said, tell me that you love me. Well, she'd probably say the words, right? But that would hardly imply a meaningful love relationship. And the same is true with God. He could have basically forced us to love him. But we would have been robots. We wouldn't have been loving him of our own free will. And that's meaningless love. To program a robot to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, is not the basis for a meaningful relationship. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. See, in the mind of God, true love is always expressed through willing obedience and service. Well, Genesis 2, verse 17, God says, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Hebrew is dying, you shall surely die. And remember I said when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, what died instantly was their spirit, severing them from God, right? But what also happened was at this moment, they set in motion the process of death. We've talked about it. It gets into what's called the entropy laws, where up until this point, man was perfect. He wasn't supposed to age. The psalmist said he was clothed in light. Uh, you know, And so the idea is that that originally man was made perfect and he wasn't supposed to age. He was supposed to live forever. But when he disobeyed God in the garden, yes, he began to die. And now today is no sooner than a person is born, they begin to grow up. But really what they're doing is growing old. And eventually they will grow old and die. Because after the fall, you had things moving from order to disorder, from integration to disintegration. Things are rusting and they're decaying. And they're wearing out all that was the result of man's sin, which set in motion, not just for mankind, but for the whole universe, by the way. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation, including the, the physical universe, is subject to the fall. And everything now is wearing out. Stars are dying. Galaxies are dying. And everything is because of sin. Now, someday when the Lord Jesus comes back, he's going to recreate everything. And we're going to live in a perfect environment once again, the eternal state. But dying, you shall surely die. Verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. Pardon me? I missed 18. I'm sorry, did I not read that earlier? The most important one. Hang on a second now. Let me see if I got it. Oh, I got it. It's coming up. 
I purposely skipped over it to kind of... All right, but thank you. Keep me honest here. Sometimes I do that, by the way. I'd... All right, I, I see it. It's coming up. Um, all right, verse 19, once again. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Now listen to me. Adam was probably the smartest man who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Because when God made him, he gave him a brain that was designed by God, listen, to function at 100% capacity. Now, I'm functioning somewhere between 8 and 12% capacity. I'm sure about that. Can you imagine having a brain? We, sometimes we see an individual. I think they're called savants. Uh, or are just, they're brilliant, like uh, Mozart. I think at five years old, his parents took him to a, 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 a very involved concert. In those days, of course, you know, it was these, these concerts, these operas, and uh, they, they went on and on. And he went home and he wrote every note down exactly the way he heard it for the whole thing. You know, once in a while we get a glimpse of what we could be if sin hadn't messed us up. Right, and what we someday will be, and even more. But I believe Adam was the smartest man that ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus, using 100% of his brain capacity. And then listen, <laughs> he then piled into it 930 years of learning. So created absolutely brilliant, and then he added 930 years of learning into that brain. I tell you what, he was an incredibly intelligent person don't forget as we said earlier that the bible says god made man a little lower than the angels a little lower than the angels i think everyone here would agree that angels are super intelligent beings ancient man was incredibly intelligent we read in genesis chapter 4 verse 22 of a man named tubal cain of whom it says was and i'm quoting scripture an instructor of every craftsman, listen, in bronze and iron. This is going back before the flood. Archaeologists have found bronze artifacts, bronze artifacts dating back before the flood. And it's a unique kind of bronze from what I understand. We can't replicate it today. We don't know how they did it. The antediluvian world, antediluvian man, which was man before the flood, was extremely intelligent. We see this from archaeology. The ancient Egyptians embalmed bodies with a skill we don't possess today. And the same goes for the building of the pyramids. Do you realize that the Great Pyramid was built over 20 years' time? And to create this, and I forgot how many stones went into this thing. It's, it's about 500 feet high, and I forget what the base is, but from what I was reading... Um, it would take every day them to lay 800 tons of stone to finish this thing in 20 years. Now, I've seen programs by modern scientists that have tried to figure out how they did it. They, they can't figure it out. Archaeologists have proven that ancient men excelled in mathematics. We all know that. But also in medicine, even performing brain surgeries. Archaeology has proved this. Uh, they have also found that, found that ancient men used, listen, wet cell batteries. They produced about a, a volt and a half of electricity and even invented a gear-based computer, which I saw on television, and they x-rayed it and showed the gears inside. It was really a computer that they had designed for certain purposes. Uh, all of this is in direct opposition to the evolutionists who say that modern man is far more intelligent than the ancient man. Why do they say that? Because it's based on the theory of evolution that we're evolving and getting smarter and smarter. Then archaeology goes out, archaeologists go out there and mess all that up. They find things, and you can go to your public library and check out a DVD called Mysteries of the Ancients. And they'll talk about the very things I just talked about. How man invented a computer, used wet cell batteries, and performed surgeries, and did other things that we can't figure out how they did it today. But they're not mysteries to us. We know the Bible says man was made a little lower than the angels. I mean, you know, we haven't gotten more intelligence. Sure, technology has increased in a lot of ways, but 
We haven't gotten more intelligent. Well, if you, if you doubt that, go out to one of the college campuses and ask them some basic questions about our form of government, our leaders, who's the vice president, who's the speaker of the house. They don't know all these young people. Who's Justin Bieber? Or they can draw you a picture of him. You know? I mean, you know. And now we want to legalize pot? Oh, that's, you know, you know that's not going to do anything to increase men's intellect. Kind of a society of really dumb people walking around just high all the time. Mysteries of the ancients. It's only a mystery if you're, you're an evolutionist, not a mystery if you're an evangelical Christian. Now, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good. Guys, it's the first time that God said something in his creation was not good. Remember how chapter 1 ended and God saw it was all good. God made a good creation. Sin messed it up. But the first thing that God said was not good was that man should live alone. He said, I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So, and he gave them good names, didn't he? He didn't say, uh, you know, uh, animal one, animal two, you know. There's an old uh, Mark Twain little spoof on this where Adam goes home to Eve and, and uh, she said to him, why did you call that animal elephant? He said, it looked like an elephant, you know. <laughs> Anyways, these were, these were good names, right? And um, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. You say, well, why did God want Adam to name all these animals? Well, I think the big reason was because he wanted Adam to see that every one of them had a companion. That was the design of God. And it was always in the mind of God to make a companion for Adam. He wanted Adam, though, to realize that in God's creation, everything living thing he made, you know, of the animals and all, they had companions. And this caused Adam to desire a companion for himself. And I'm just imagining Adam is, as the animals are coming two by two in front of him, and he's naming them, and he's seeing, boy, they each have a partner, they each have a companion, and he has no one that's comparable to himself. Well, as the loneliness of his predicament began to set in, I think God at that point stepped in. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Now the language here is significant, guys. She was taken from his side, not molded from the ground like Adam, but taken from the side of Adam's own body. She was taken from a part of Adam so that he would be naturally incomplete until she was joined to him in marriage. I like what Augustine said along these lines. He said, and I quote, If God had wanted woman to rule over man, she would have been taken from man's head. And if God had wanted woman to be man's slave, she would have been taken from his feet. But God wanted woman to be his partner, his complement, and so God took her from his side, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved, so she could stand alongside him and be his companion. I think that's a beautiful thought. And, I, and it's absolutely biblically accurate. Now, what exactly did God take from Adam's side to make Eve? What does your Bible say? Mine says a rib. Anybody else say something else? Okay, well... That Hebrew word, translated rib in your Bible, is used 35 times in the Old Testament, only translated rib right here. Usually it's translated side. So God just took something from Adam's side. It might have been a rib. We don't know. I, I kind of think that um, even though we don't know, and let me just say this to you, 
even though we don't know for sure, it doesn't really matter. Because whatever he took, modern uh, research into, into cloning and genetic replication shows that every cell in the human body contains a complete genetic code that can clone, is able to be, to be used to clone an entire you, okay, and me, every cell. Every cell contains all the genetic information necessary to make an exact copy of you and me. So it doesn't really matter what God took, right? I think he just took some DNA, okay? I think he took some DNA and changed its genetic blueprint slightly in the creation of Eve. Nevertheless, maybe you've heard this story. It's gotten around that uh, because of the way God made Eve by taking one of Adam's ribs. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that's why women have one extra rib than a man. That's not true. (laughs) Somebody said to me while I was in California, because he was thinking about the judgment of God coming, he said, do you realize that around the world, the most common name right now of parents to name their sons is Noah. Isn't that freaky? <laughs> Noah. Like, you know, when God first judged the world, okay? He's getting ready to judge the world. I thought, oh, that's pretty, wow. <laughs> Went home and Googled it. Eh, no. <laughs> I, I don't know where people get these things. I mean, you know, check it out before you pass it along, all right? So that's a myth. We'll just write that one up. Women don't have an extra rib. Because of Adam, all right? But let me just say this to you. Symbolically, what do you think's going on here? What do you think's going on here? Look, we also know the bride of Christ comes from the wound made in the side of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ, the church, became his bride, was able to be redeemed because of the pain he suffered. As the spirit wound went in, of course, in his nails, in his hands and feet, nailing him to the cross. But uh, it all points to Jesus. Jesus said, the volume of the book is written of me. Now, when God finished with the creation of Eve, he brought her to Adam. And when Adam first got a glimpse of Eve, okay, he was overwhelmed. And this comes through pretty clearly in the Hebrew. Here's what he said, verse 23. He said, now now he's raising his voice, because in the Hebrew and the Greek, you you can put it in such a way as, Emotion is being exhibited, okay? So in the Hebrew, this is what Adam said. He said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. He's happy. He's excited. Adam called her woman. Woman is the translation of the Hebrew word isha. The word for man in Hebrew is ish. The word for woman, isha, means taken. From man. And then, of course, we don't see it here spelled out, but we know this is what happened. God married them, where God not only gave away the bride, but he performed the ceremony. Okay? God joined them together. And uh, she became Adam's companion. And listen, his help meet. Help meet. Don't confuse help meet with help mate. That's a Hebrew word the King James translates help meet. She would certainly be his helpmate, that's true. But the Hebrew word translated helpmate in the King James Version is a word that means, listen, someone to fill up the empty places in your life. Someone to stand along with you, alongside you, and make you complete. Men, that's what God designed your wife to be. Someone who completes you. And girls, that is your calling by God to be your husband's completer now listen to me in our society we have turned everybody against each other now we see this very clearly in marriage don't we where instead of a woman rejoicing in her role to complete her husband she no longer wants to be a completer she wants to be a competer and this is where a lot of the problems come in the the battle of the sexes right where men and women are battling in marriage battling for dominance And what happens today in our culture is pretty much everyone settled into an equal role. And what that leads to is a two-headed monster running your family. That's what God wanted to avoid. That's why God said the man was to be the head over his wife. Now, it gets into something that I want to bring up. 
And that is, why did God create woman this way? Why didn't he form her out of the dust of the ground like he did Adam? Was she an afterthought? Was, did God say, oops, you know what, I really should make somebody for this guy. You know, I made it a companion for all the other animals. He's feeling bad about not having a companion. I know what I'll do. I'll make someone for him. Look, Eve was not an afterthought, okay? She was in the plan of God from the very beginning. Why did God do it that way? Because Paul tells us why in his writings, and that was to establish God's order for marriage. He made the man first. From the man he made the woman, signifying the man is to be the head. He is to be an authority over his wife, and she is to live in submission to him. Now, if you want to get into this, we've got done a whole marriage thing. We studied the book of Ephesians chapter 5. You can dig all that out on your own, because we went into this in great length, okay? But in 1 Timothy 2, why don't you turn there? Let's look at a couple of scriptures where you kind of wind this down. And I'll, well, let me just read them to you. Okay. In 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 11, listen to what Paul said. He's writing to Timothy, a young pastor. He said, let a woman, talking about in the local congregation, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now, that sounds pretty bad. Okay, yeah, get the CD and find out what Paul was really saying there, but I don't have time to get into it right now. Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived by the serpent, as we're going to see, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Paul is saying that women are not to be leaders in the church like pastors and elders because, and you know what, if you're going to get upset with this, take it up with Paul and ultimately with the Lord, because this is what he said, okay? But Paul is saying God did not wire women the way he wired men. doesn't mean that men are better, just they're we're wired different, okay? It's like somebody asked Corey Tenboom one time, it's like saying, what is the better color, red or blue? There's no thing as better color, they're just different. They're, all, they're both colors, okay? Who's better, the man or the woman? Neither. They're, they're equal in God's eyes. They each have a role to, to fulfill, okay? It's not a matter of who's better. And submission and authority and submission doesn't mean superiority and inferiority. Any more than Jesus saying, the Father is greater than me, and the Spirit has put himself under my authority and the Father's authority. The, Holy, the Trinity is... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, all equal. But for the sake of the mission of redemption, the Son voluntarily placed himself under the Father's authority, and the Spirit, when he came, placed himself under the Father and Son's authority. This is not about who's better or superior and inferior. It's just God's design to get things done. Again, somebody has got to have the last word. Somebody has got to make the final decision. Again, you can't have a two-headed monster running your family. And this is why so many marriages are in trouble and have failed. Because we're not following God's design. But in our day of feminism and women's liberation, to hear Paul say these things here in 1 Timothy 2, I mean, these are fighting words, aren't they? It's the kind of words that cause most women to, in our country to go ballistic. Many of these women call Paul a crusty old bachelor who was an anti-woman male chauvinist. Look, I, guarantee, I challenge you to study what Paul said about women. I mean, Paul the Apostle and ultimately Jesus Christ did more to elevate women out of the place that they were in in the ancient world, basically slaves. He said, husbands, you cherish your wives and treat them like Christ treats his bride. That was revolutionary, guys. We, we have 2,000 years of church history. That's common stuff for us. In the ancient world, that was huge. It was revolutionary. I mean, men looked at their wives as basically property. They didn't cherish their wives. They used their wives. They had mistresses, which was totally socially acceptable. The wife was to do the housework and raise the legitimate kids. That was the mindset. How'd you like to grow up in that environment? It was Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle, and the other apostles who said, no, that's not God's design for women. God made uh, Adam and Eve, God made them as mankind. And they have different roles, but not one is better than the other. Now, again, a lot of 
people in the feminist movement just go berserk uh, with us Christians because the Bible teaches these things and they want to rip us apart or redefine what the Bible is saying. Look, those of us who are evangelicals hold to a high view of Scripture. And it wasn't Paul. He's not a male chauvinist. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as such, these are not the words of Paul. They're the words of God. I'll give you one more. 1 Corinthians 11. Here's another one that uh, people love, especially the women in our, unsaved women in our country. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn or shaved. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. That's the order God laid down. Verse 10, For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man and the Lord. For as woman, Eve, came from man, even so man comes through woman. That all things are of God. Now again, I don't have time to explain everything he's saying. You can get the CD, go online, listen to this portion of 1 Corinthians 11. But let me just say this. Paul is saying very clearly that God laid down a, um, uh, an authority structure. He made man first and then took from man's side something to make Eve from because he was laying down the principle of authority and submission. He says it's true. The first woman was taken from man, Adam. But girls, you're not second-class citizens because every man born after that came from the woman. And in God's eyes, we're all equal, right? Galatians 3, 27 and 8, there's neither slave nor free, uh, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. Okay, even though we have function, function. Okay, let's wrap it up. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Since Adam had no parents to leave, obviously this leaving of father and mother was a principle to be projected into the next generation and then, of course, applied to all future generations. The Hebrew word, for joined in the New King James Version is dabak. In the King James Version, it's translated cleave. And it refers to a strong bonding together of objects uh, and often was used to represent gluing or cementing them together. Now, that's obviously very important. If God would have said, you know, a uh, man shall leave his mother and father and shall be, what, tied, rubber-banded, or paper-clipped to his spouse, well, we wouldn't have gotten the impression this was a very permanent union. But God says glued, cemented together, indicating that marriage was always intended by God to be a permanent union until death separates one from the other and involves the total commitment and consecration of husbands and wives to each other for the rest of their lives. One flesh, one flesh. Well, we know that in the phys physical act of intercourse, symbolically, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, a man and a woman do become one. Symbolically. But that physical intimacy, where they symbolically become one, can lead, and often does, produce a child that is literally one flesh from the two. So from the two, God says the two shall become one flesh. Well, that's literal in the children, right? Where each parent donates 23 pairs of chromosomes, 46 pairs altogether, uh, for the conception and then the uh, the eventual birth of a child. So the two literally become one flesh. Verse 25, And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Why were they not ashamed even though they were naked? Well, it's because, as dispensationalists put it, this was the dispensation of innocence. What, what does that mean? Well, at this point, man, mankind, Adam and Eve, were like little children. They hadn't eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't know good from evil. 
so they were innocent. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, your uh, sister drops off her three-year-old uh, daughter and uh, for you to watch because you've got, you know, your three-year-old son in summertime and the kids are outside playing. So in the evening, right, before bed, what happens? As a mom, you throw both three-year-olds in the tub, boy and girl, and they're splashing around having a great time. They don't have no clue, okay, that, you know, when you get older, unmarried people shouldn't do this together, okay? Um, but they're innocent. They're kids. They don't know any better. Adam and Eve at this point were very innocent. Now, that would all change when the fall occurred after they ate the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the age of innocence, the dispensationalists say, started with the creation of man and then ended uh, in the garden when they sinned against God and God eventually drove them out of the garden. Now, that we will look at next time. Very important story because it lays the groundwork for the whole story of redemption. Okay? And we'll study it next time, God willing. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. Your word gives us light. And we pray, Lord, that you will give us the grace to understand it and then the strength to walk in its light every day. We don't want to stumble in a world of darkness. Darkness is so intense right now, Lord, more than I've ever seen it in my lifetime. And if your people are going to walk and not stumble in the darkness, we have to have light. Your word is a light, a light and a lamp to our feet. So give us grace to walk in its truths. And we ask you to continue to bless these studies for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.